and they've stretched our mind beyond their capacity to understand how great you are and how great is your plan that you have revealed. And Heavenly Father, thank you that we are recipients of that plan. We are beneficiaries of it. And thank you that we can have a day like this where we spend just thinking about it. And we pray that you'd help us in this last session now this afternoon to maintain our attention and to grow in our understanding of your righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles between page 939 and take it in your fingers, the whole of Romans, let's just review where we have come. Romans 1, 1 to, 8, 1 to 17, is the introduction of the gospel. Paul introduces himself, he introduces his readers, he introduces his gospel. He makes it clear of his gospel interests, and at the heart of this gospel, it is all about righteousness through God's Son. From chapter 1, verse 13, uh, sorry, from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, we see how we do not have the righteousness we need. The pagan idolater does not have it, the moralist does not have it, the unreached national does not have it, and the Jew does not have it. None of us in all humanity have it. From chapter 3, verse 21, through to the end of chapter 5, Paul shows God's provision of righteousness by grace through faith in his son Jesus. It is only found in Jesus. It is exclusive and it is humbling because we make no contribution by earning that righteousness or receiving it as a reward. From chapter 6 through to chapter 8, Paul points out that just as the law was no help in bringing us into relationship with God, the law is no help again in, in leading us on in holiness or godliness. It is a help in that it identifies sin and identifies us as sinners, but the reality is we grow in what is called sanctification. We grow more and more to be like the Lord Jesus. We grow into the righteousness that God has already imputed or credited to us. We recognize that we have died. Baptism is an illustration of that. The slave market is an illustration of that. The marriage is an illustration of that. The law is there and we simply cannot do it. Now that brings us to to the great reminder that we need something to happen and in Christ something has happened. There is no condemnation. Jesus through his sin offering has uh, satisfied God and the past is gone. It is forgiven. In the present we have the Holy Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us in the battle against the flesh, who reminds us that we are the children of God, who reminds us that we are heirs and when we don't know how to pray, he is the one who prays for us. Then we come to chapter 9 to 11 which is about God's righteousness or faithfulness being under question. Uh, If God was not faithful to Israel, how can we expect him to be faithful to us? And Paul's answer is that God was perfectly faithful to Israel. There is an Israel within Israel. There is an elect within the nation. And he shows that by Jacob and Esau and shows that God hardens some and is sovereign in that. Uh, Pharaoh is an example and he has mercy on others in order to show 
glorify himself by showing the full range of his character as a merciful God and as a God of wrath also. But we should not think that this sovereign choice of God paralyzes us at the point of evangelism. Rather, it gives evangelism its intent and real meaning because God's way of calling people into his family, into his people, is through the proclamation of the gospel. And therefore, his people have beautiful feet as they take that gospel out with the conviction that faith will come from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is God's power to save, that as people hear that and as we share it clearly and as we pray, that God brings people to salvation. Well, where does that leave Israel? Chapter 11, verse 1. It does not mean that God has rejected his people. Paul says, by no means, because he himself is an Israelite and God hadn't uh, rejected him. In chapter 11, verse 7, he says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God's hardening and electing ministry goes on and he makes it clear to the Gentiles whom God has included in the olive tree that they have been grafted in but they should not be arrogant about that in any way. So God has hardened and God has elected. 25 of chapter 11, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening of Israel has come upon Israel until all the Gentiles that God has predestined to come in, come in. And in this way, ultimately, uh, probably through the envy built up by Israel when they see the non-Jews coming to salvation, they also will come to salvation. And somehow in this way, all Israel, that is probably meaning all the elect of Israel, will be saved. But at the end of this chapter, Paul cries out, as you probably felt like crying out at the end of the last Bible study, and he cries out, I've reached the end of my intellectual capacity. And why shouldn't we? Because God is great. And he has revealed this plan to us. None of us could have invented this. Paul said he was not tutored in this gospel. It came by revelation. And he simply, and Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, I have fallen so often prostrate before the great doctrines of foreknowledge and predestination and election. He affirmed them but it didn't mean that he understood them in every way. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, that brings us now to communal righteousness, how we don't have righteousness, how God provides righteousness, how we grow in righteousness. Was God righteous to Israel? Now communal righteousness. And we come to chapter 12, verse 1. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this section that we're about to look at this afternoon. This is where the rubber hits the road for us. This is the application of the great truths and we do pray that you draw near to us and apply them in ways which are individual to us. In the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray and thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
there is a, a, a program on a British television called Angry Old Men, and it concerns just a number of old English men who are getting old, and one of the characteristics of getting old are that old men get angry. They get cranky because today's not as good as the good old days, is it? Mind you, when you hear an old man say that, remember the good old days was never, were never as good as what he remembers them to be. He's idealised the past. But here's an old man. His name's David Gordon. He goes along to his GP and he finds out that he's got a grade four terminal bowel tumour. Inoperable, he will die within six months. He thinks to himself, well, I'm only going to die once, so I'm going to make the most of it. I'll write a book. I'll write a book about what really makes me angry. And he wrote a book about the state of preaching in the American church. It really made him angry. He called the book Why Johnny Can't Preach. Uh, he continued to live, and as far as I know, he's still alive today. So while, <laughs> while, he, while he continued to live, um, he thought, well, I'll just keep writing books till I die. And he wrote his second book on why Johnny can't sing, the state of pr singing in the American church. And if you really want to get an old person going, start talking to them about hymns and songs, and they'll start being really angry then, um, why Johnny can't sing. But listen to this, what he says in Why Johnny Can't Preach. He says, ethical exhortation, and I reckon this is a word straight for Chinese preachers, ethical exhortation must never be divorced from its redemptive environment. And that's brilliant, isn't it? Because every month or so, I'm asked by the teenagers at our church to go and do an hour with them. And I reckon that these kids are constantly told what to do as Christians, but rarely told why they should do it. So I want to put a great deal of emphasis on the why you should live this way, as well as the what you should do. Because if they just know what to do without knowing why to do it, when they get older, they'll soon reject the what because they don't know the why. Ethical exhortation, urging people to live a certain way, must never be divorced from its redemptive environment. Now, one of my friends at the gym, a very good friend, a Roman Catholic friend, uh, I invited him to our college one night. I was giving a double lecture for two hours. He came, and the next morning after the gym, we went to the coffee shop. So we'd have an hour and a half workout in the gym and then an hour and a half in the coffee shop to work off the work of the gym. And I said to him, I said to him the next morning, what did you think of the lecture last night? And he said, I thought it was brilliant. And I said, what did you particularly think was brilliant about it? He said, when you said, two comes before three. Now, what is brilliant about that? <laughs> but, of course, it is brilliant for a Roman Catholic. Just keep your finger there and go back, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, you remember, you have the list of the Ten Commandments. Now, we're on page 61. It's good we're in the same Bible, 61. And look at the, the list of the Ten Commandments. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, did you notice that? 
Because when we list the Ten Commandments, we invariably start at verse 3, but verse 3 is preceded by verse 2. In verse 2, God says, I have redeemed you or brought you out of the land of slavery. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, I will redeem you or bring you out of the land of slavery if you keep these commandments. He says, I have redeemed you. I have brought you out of the land of slavery. Now live this way. Two comes before three. Redemptive environment comes before the ethical exhortation. Now, if you like, please come back. What's this got to do with Romans 12? Well, here, look at Romans 12, verse 1. And you see again how the redemptive environment is the setting for the ethical exhortation. It's the last of the therefores. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and the footnote says brothers or sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, quite rightly, the ESV has translated mercies in the plural to show the intensity of the mercies. And with that one clause, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, Paul has summed up everything that he has said in chapters 1 to 11. Right? So that in chapters 1 to 11, he's given us the redemptive environment. Now, what has he said in chapters 1 to 11? We're right with God through the work of our Lord Jesus. It is by grace and faith links us to the work of Jesus. Now, look, um, do we want to just clean up now so that you don't have to keep doing that? Do you want to take everything that would be... Or are you right? Oh, are you okay? Sorry, righto. Is there anything else you need to get so we can make it easy for you? Ah, righto. Okay, so if you've got plates and things, that'll be good. It's all right. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Okay. Rightio, so let's come back now to Romans 12.1. And so what Paul's saying is he's saying the mercies of God really sum up everything he said in the first 11 chapters. And what's he said in the first 11 chapters? He's told us the way God sets us right, sets us right with himself by grace through faith in Jesus. And now Paul takes that up and he applies that. Now just just watch that. So, So he says, now, in view of the mercies of God, therefore I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, those of you, I don't know if you're royal watchers here, but we are royal watchers in our family. I I love when we go to England, you're able to say to the English, the Queen Elizabeth II is the Queen of Australia. In fact, she's much more our Queen than she is your Queen. And the English think, oh, no, she's not. Yes, she is. Because in 2001, we voted for her to continue to be our Queen, and the English have never voted for her to be their Queen, have they? But we have in Australia. Now, what's interesting in that is if you watch the 60th anniversary Thanksgiving service of the coronation of the Queen at St Paul's Cathedral, you will know that the preacher preached on this section, Romans 12. And if you watch the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William and Catherine, you'll know that the preacher preached on this same section. Romans 12 was read and preached on at both of those services. And yet I think that if you preach that sermon at our college, I would have failed the sermon. And the reason was that both preachers took the living sacrifice and told us that we needed to be good citizens, but completely divorced it from what God said is its redemptive environment. 
that is in view of God's mercies. Because of God's mercy in redeeming you, this is how you are to live. Now look at what he says. In view, in response to God's mercies, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we know what a dead, Israel knew what a dead sacrifice looked like. But here, in response to the mercies of God, we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, just keep that in mind, because I grew up in Australia when we changed currency from pounds, shillings and pence to dollars and cents. And I remember going to work. I I just started work in the city that month. And on the 13th of February, 1966, you could go with your pound, shillings and pence and you could buy anything. But on the 14th of February, 1966, you could only go with your pound, shillings and pence and it would only buy one thing, dollars and cents. In other words, you had to go to the bank and give them all your money and they'd give you the, the new currency back. Now, the new currency made redundant the old currency. So you couldn't use it anymore. It was replaced by the new. And we know that the whole of the sacrificial system has been made redundant because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He's replaced it. But what is Paul saying here? He's saying that that sacrifice of Jesus makes necessary the one sacrifice of myself as a living sacrifice. And Paul says this is holy and acceptable to God and he says this is your spiritual worship. Now look at the foot of the page, point six in the footnotes and it says this is your rational service. Now to me spiritual and rational don't mean the same thing. In fact I think most people in Australia when they say I'm very spiritual it means they're very superstitious or irrational. (laughs) And so it's the very opposite. But when you look at the original word, the original word is the word from which we get logical. That's much more rational than spiritual. And so I would say, which is your rational, it's your logical worship. This is the right thing to do. So we say to our children, don't touch white hot metal. Don't drink fluid from cups with a skull and crossbones. Say thank you. Don't go through a red light. It's rational. It's logical. In view of God's mercies, because you've been redeemed, you are to see yourself as a living sacrifice. That's rational. That's the rational response. Now, keep going. And he says, what does this involve? Verse 2. See, this is core, isn't it, to discipling. When we had the discipleship day the other day for pastors, this was our focus. Don't conform to the world. The world always is trying to suck us in to conform to it, but we don't. But we are transformed, notice, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Now, therefore, transformation comes by the renewal of your mind. Now, keep your finger there and come back to Romans chapter 1. And that's on page 939. And just notice, remember, that Paul has already talked about the mind. And remember, in God's passive judgment, he gave them up. And look at Romans 1.18, sorry, 1.28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so the natural mind of humankind was a counterfeit mind. And part of that debasement of the mind was God's judgment on them. God gave them up to the fruit of that mind. 
But notice that now you have been redeemed, now you have the spirit, go back to Romans 12, what's happened is your mind has been renewed and your new mind now is able to discern the will of God, you are able to recognise what is good, acceptable and perfect. So you have a mind which is different to the world. You have a renewed mind and it is through the renewal of your mind in the power of God's spirit that you are being transformed. Now let's look at this again. I'll just read it as it is here. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God seen in the redemptive propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual, logical, rational worship. Do not conform, therefore, to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the new mind which God has given to you, so that by testing you may discern with this new mind what is the will of God, so that you might recognise with this new mind what is his good, acceptable and perfect will. Now, flip the page... And Paul now shows us three areas in which your transformation and the way you think is going to be starkly different from the way the world thinks. Look at verses 3, first of all, to verse 8. And he shows you here uh, how I think of myself. Now, the world tells me to think big of myself. It's, it's, It's in the essence of success to think big of me. But look at what Paul says, verse 3. You are to think of yourself with sober judgment. Okay, with sober judgment. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. Now, therefore, we are in the body of Christ. You see, this is quite confronting, isn't it, to all our culture. If your background is in Confucianism... And if you've been raised in a home that's been influenced by Confucianism, you will know that the whole emphasis of that Confucianism is independence. Don't trust anyone outside the family. Uh, Build up your own resources so that you're not dependent on anyone else. Now, that sort of culture is directly confronted here. You are therefore to see that you are part of a body, that you are individually members that you each have gifts. I do not have all the gifts, so I'm dependent on you and your contribution. You don't have all the gifts and you're dependent on me, so there's an interdependence. There's no false humility. Oh, I couldn't do that because I'm not good at anything. You are gifted in some ways. So there's no dependence on one another. There's no independence of one another. We are interdependent on one another. And this is because we are we have a renewed mind and the renewed mind is not the Confucian mind. The renewed mind is not the secular mind. The renewed mind is not the Islamic mind. The renewed mind is the mind we get because we've been redeemed and we've received the Holy Spirit of God. Now, therefore, I look at myself with sober judgment as interdependent within the body of Christ. Look at verse 9. The second area, which is so contrary to the way the world thinks, is the way in which I relate to you, my fellow believers. Look at verse 9. You'll have to follow this as I read. Let love be genuine. How? By abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. 
Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. How? By outdoing one another in showing honor. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. How? By serving the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. How? By being constant in prayer. You see, the last section tells you the how of the first two, one or two sections. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. How? Seek to show hospitality. The word is literally persecute hospitality. It doesn't mean that you wreck hospitality. You do a terrible job of it, but you, you pursue hospitality with the zeal of a persecutor. Now, that's the idea here. Hospitality is not just a pain in the neck or another person, but it's actually you're enthusiastic about it. Now, notice the link to the next section, because where he says pursue hospitality, Paul now goes on and shows in verse 14 how we are to respond to those who persecute us, not with hospitality, but those who want to do us harm. Bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's remarkably similar to what our Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Because when I see my enemy happy, I'm sad. And when I see my enemy sad, I'm happy. But here I'm being told that when I see my enemy rejoice, I'm to rejoice with him. When I see him weep, I'm to weep with him. So there's this, this generous, surprising response. I mean, friends, this is crazy in the world. The worldly mind will say, well, this is all nonsense. But Paul is showing how the renewed mind, which leads to a transformed lifestyle, how it thinks. Live in harmony with one another, verse 16. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So how are we to respond to antagonism from outside? We're to respond in surprisingly generous ways. The very opposite of what the worldly mind says. So therefore, in my new mind, I'm virtually doing exactly the opposite of what the world says. So it's, it's a fair rule, isn't it? This is what the world says I should do. We'll do the very opposite, and you're probably doing what, what honours God. I think big of yourself, be sober in your judgment. Uh, here are my fellow believers, rip them off. No, look at what he says. This is how I'm to love them. Uh, here's my enemies, don't take revenge, rather respond generously. And he quotes from Proverbs, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, so be generous in your response. That cannot mean it's a good way of taking revenge on him. It must mean that you're shaming him by your generous response to show him the great wickedness of the way he's treating you. Don't be over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know the story of the Uptons. They go to Taiwan. They're the first missionary couple to go into the south of Taiwan. And when they go there, one of the Buddhist monks comes to their apartment. And outside their apartment, he lets off firecrackers from 7 in the morning till 7 at night. He sings incantations to get rid of, the, rid of these foreign devils. And after a week of this going on, Mrs Upton says to her husband, we'll get down there at 6.30, a half an hour before he arrives. We'll put out a table chair umbrella, Chinese tea and rice. So he knows that he's welcome. 
And after three days of doing that, it was the neighbours who came to this monk and said, leave here, you're an embarrassment to us. These people are being kind to you and you are doing this in the face of kindness. Now, you see, Paul says here, this is the way the renewed mind thinks. This is contrary to the way the world thinks. Now, the issue, therefore, is this. And here, friends, is righteousness in practice, in community. The question is, if I am wronged and I'm not to take revenge, well, who is going to take revenge? And Paul now comes in chapter 13 and he shows that most often the one who bears the sword is the civil superior authority. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So this time last week we were in Kuching, and I was doing a preaching seminar with pastors through the letter to the Romans. And And they wanted me to preach twice each day, but they wanted me on the last day to preach a sermon from Romans 13, 1 to 7. The title of the sermon was The Christian and Najib Razak. Now, that's the last mention, that is the last mention I made of Najib Razak. But it was about how we are to respond to governments. And I made the point, of course, that when Paul writes this, remember, Nero has been emperor of Rome from 54 to 68. And Paul probably writes in about 57. Now, how did Nero come to the position? He had a great uncle called Claudius... And Claudius was the previous Roman emperor, and Claudius adopted Nero as his own son. In 54 AD, Claudius was poisoned to death. Probably Nero was complicit in that. So he's not a nice sort of a person. And he is the governing authority of which Paul is immediately speaking here. And what you notice is this is a superior authority or governing authority. What you notice here is that Paul says the basic attitude of the renewed mind is to be subject. The word is technically submit. And he doesn't say obey. There's an element of voluntary nature in submission. It's something you do to yourself. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, Paul gives a number of reasons why our basic attitude to the authorities is one of respect. The first is that it is instituted or established by God. Second, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, the next four, F-O-R, he is God's servant for your good. Now notice he's the servant of God, he's instituted by God, he's established by God. For he he is the servant of God, again in verse 4, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience, because he's God's servant, he's instituted, whether you like him or not, whether you voted for him or not, is irrelevant. Now, this is a most un-Australian section of the letter to the Romans because we dislike all our politicians and we hold them in none, none of them in any respect. So you might have a particular attitude to the Prime Minister, but you might prefer the opposition leader. Mostly in Australia, we don't like any of them. And, uh, and it's quite the opposite of the United States. 
where they seem to look on their president as a seal of a person of national pride. It's not that way in Australia. And so it's quite contrary to Australian thinking, this sort of thinking. And therefore, Australian Christians need to listen to this. No matter what you think of them, we are to be respectfully submissive to them. And if you look in verse 6, for the same reason... You also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. And sorry, verse 5. You see how that paragraph ends. Therefore, one must be in subjection. So subjection in verse 1, subjection in verse 5. This is the renewed mind. Because this person, this government, is a servant of God and has been instituted by God and is a minister of God. That is the reality. Now, does that mean, therefore, that I'm to do everything they say? No because they are obviously ministers of God. They are servants of God. They may have a superior authority to us, but it's not the supreme authority because the supreme authority has instituted them. Now, in, the, in, in, the, in Australia at the moment, I'm part of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. I think we have 550 to 600 ordained ministers in Australia. And the federal government, that's the government over all of Australia, has given us all a certificate to say that we can marry people. We have the right to marry people in our churches or anywhere else. But the, and at that point, I am a superior authority because not everybody has the right to marry, but I do. But in that sense, the federal government has given that right to me. But over the federal government is the supreme authority. So the supreme authority gives authority to my government and my government gives authority to me to marry people. And we're now facing the issue in our nation where there's a great deal of pressure to change the definition of marriage under the Marriage Act so that marriage will include same-sex marriage, man-to-man, woman-to-woman. And I'm grateful for our Prime Minister because he's got the gumption, he's got the backbone to stand up and say no. And he's leading his party not to have a conscience vote, but to bind them to say no. So we need to pray for him in that. However, I think it is inevitable, with all the pressure that's coming from the media and everywhere else, that one government soon will change the definition of marriage in the Marriage Act. Now, what are we to do? We have talked about this and decided, we're in the process of deciding, and it looks like we are going to decide, we'll say this. You are our superior authority. You give us the right to marry people. You change the definition of marriage into a definition which is inconsistent with the supreme authority, God himself, and you can have your right back. In other words, we renounce our right to marry people. Now, there's all sorts of legal implications with that, but we will all do it. And the government which changes the Marriage Act will find that they have been reminded that they are not the supreme authority, but that God is the supreme authority. Now, the other issue about this is my mother was an interior decorator for about 60 or 70 years. She made the insides of homes look beautiful. And you can imagine my mother getting the babysitter in to look after my two sisters and me. And the babysitter now says, eat your vegetables because your mother said you should. Oh, well, we'll eat the vegetables because this is the representative of my mother. And when you've eaten your vegetables, the babysitter says, we'll get our paints and crayons and we'll paint and crayon on all the lovely wallpaper around your mother's room. And at that point you say, no, you won't, because you're acting inconsistently with the authority of my mother, which is a superior authority to yours. Now, here is the government established by God, instituted by him, your God's servant. We will obey and respect. We will submit and respect. 
But there will be a point where we say thus far and no further, just as the apostles did, just as Jesus taught two sides of the coin, just as Daniel prayed before the open window, just as Moses' mother disregarded the command of the king of Egypt, just as the midwives of Egypt disregarded the king who said to kill the Hebrew babies. Now, that is the renewed mind, but one of respect, but ultimately recognising a superior authority. Now, Paul goes on, look at verse 12. He makes it clear that the earthly civil government, the superior authority, is only there for partial time. And he says in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. The day of the new government, which is non-elected but which, which is eternal, is coming. So therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, fl to, for the flesh to gratify its desires. Live for the new government which is coming. Now then, this is the renewed mind, and the renewed mind goes further. Because look at chapter 14, there's a problem in the church, and some commentators believe this is the whole point of Romans, that Paul is building up to this. And it concerns the relations in the one church of the Jewish believer and the non-Jewish believer, the Gentile believer, and the Jewish believer has stricter standards of thinking about days and food than the non-Jewish believer. And how then are they to relate to one another? Look at what he says, 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, and I take it Paul is talking about his brother Jewish believers, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother over these issues? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Look at them, they're full of doubts and they're full of, aren't they weak or we're so strong because we partake of anything. Don't pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 4 verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother, the weak one, to stumble. 
And then Paul goes on to chapter 15. We who are strong, that is, who think we'll meet vegetarian day, this day is as good as any other. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if we can eat anything or any day is as good as any other, well, then we need to bear with the others because we have the freedom to do or not to do. The weak brother has the freedom only not to do. And so it is the strong who should make the concession to the weak for the sake of brotherly love and unity. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now why is this? It's, it's vitally important, isn't it, that in our communities, one of the things is that we show a, a settled, united community. That's what Jesus prays for in the high priestly prayer. We come from all our different backgrounds and yet we are one in Christ. And we're not quibbling and we're not breaking off into different little groups. Here are the meat eaters and here are the pork eaters and the unpork eaters and here are the, uh, the vegetarians and here are the Friday people and the Saturday and the Sunday people, all that. We're not like that because we see, and those who are strong at this point, we need to make sure that we're making the concession to bring the weak along. And sometimes, friends, that will mean that the people who are the weak ones in terms of 14 and 15 are the older people. And it's the young ones who might be the strong. And so at that point, the young ones need to exercise great sensitivity. But you've got to work that out. But every congregation, our congregation is the same. We've got Mandarins, we've got Cantonese, we've got English, we've got overseas-born, we've got Australian-born, we've got Australian-born three, four, five generation. But there's all this sort of potential that we quibble and divide out of insensitivity for the doubts and scruples of others. Now, Paul goes on and he says basically at the end of this section that Christ died for both Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. And over the page, uh, verse 16, he talks about being a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. And in chap and verse 20, he just makes this beautiful little verse, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. It's one of Paul's three ambitions. We make it our ambition to please the Lord. He says to them in Thessalonica, make it your ambition to mind your own business, work with your own hands and live a quiet life. And here he says, my ambition is to take the gospel to regions beyond. And in verse 24, he tells them, I want to go to Spain and I want you to help me on my journey to Spain once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, just keep in mind that Paul is heading west. So here he is in Asia Minor and Rome is over here and Spain is over here. And in Paul's day, the rock of Gibraltar was called the rock of Hercules. So it was thought that if you sailed past the rock of Hercules, you'd drop off the world. So Spain is pretty much as far west as you can go. And Paul's ambition is to take the gospel where Christ is not known. So he wants them to know he's ambitious to get to Spain and he wants them to assist him on his journey. So there's the mission emphasis. Uh, verse 28, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem when he brings the offering there may be acceptable to the saints. 
so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, you can read what happens in Acts 20, 21 through to 28. Uh, yes, he, uh, when he comes to Judea, uh, he was delivered from the unbelievers, but, he wasn't, but, the, but the unbelieving Jews really made life hard for him. Did he finally get to Rome? Too right he did. Under arrest in chains he got to Rome. He could never have imagined that, that he was coming under safe escort from Caesar himself. And remember, he has the storm, he has the shipwreck, he has the snake bite, everything. Paul's got no idea. He just says, pray that I'll get to Rome safely. You'll get there, buddy, but you've got no imagine what you're going to get through. Uh, So it's wonderful to see how he asks for prayer here and go back to Acts and see actually how that prayer was answered in very surprising ways. Chapter 16, you've got all these lovely greetings, this idea of Paul being an aloof, austere man. No, forget it, because he greets Prisca, verse 3, and Aquila. He greets people with Jewish names, Roman names, Greek names, Aristobulus, Apelles, Tryphena, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Julia, Nureus. And notice the designation. Look at verse 8, in the Lord. Uh, Verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. So there's this designation of in the Lord, in Christ, in the Lord. And then he says, this lovely chapter to finish with, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. So here is a lovely chapter on unity, but it is not to be a unity at the cost of truth where you have people coming, sharing with you another gospel like those who came to Galatia, let them be eternally condemned. No, truth is to be maintained. There is only one gospel. It is God's gospel. And those who come to white ant or eat away at that truth, you're to have nothing to do with them. So don't think that the be all and end all, the great goal is unity. Unity is lovely. But unity in error is not a blessing because you have sacrificed the very one who brings us together. Avoid them. For such persons, verse 18, do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Be careful of them. Every time I come to Malaysia, there's something going on here. And it's always something different. And I thought, well, this time I'm not seeing anything different until I sat down with a lady last week at Kuching. And she said, have you heard about the Nigerian prophets and the Seven Mountain Movement? I said, no, tell me. (laughs) Here it was. The time before, I'd go around to churches and I'd see placards. Come with us on a three-day conference and we'll teach you how to hear the voice of God. That's attractive, isn't it? I want to hear the voice of God. And I said to one of the elders, what's this about? Well, when we pray, we talk to God and then we're silent and we listen for his voice. What do you mean listen for his voice? You're getting a hunch from your own brain. To hear the voice of God, here it is. Read it. That is the word of God. Now, now you've got to be careful by smooth talk and flattery. Now, most of these people come in, they're nice people. So I don't think, but he's so nice. Yes, heretics are always nice. Sometimes, I tell you, here's a confession, sometimes heretics are a lot nicer than those of us who are orthodox. Have you noticed that? They're charismatic. That's why they've got a following. 
And be careful because when in my study, I studied the life of Athanasius and Arius in the 4th century. And Athanasius, remember, was exiled five times by four Roman emperors because he stood for the deity of Jesus Christ. Arius opposed him. Arius was a really nice man. Arius had logic on his side. He said, if, if there is a father and a son, then the father must predate the son. That's the logic of it. So Jesus is not equal with the father. But the other thing that Arius had going for him is that he wrote his lyrics down to be sung. And when you start singing, you start believing what you're singing, don't you? So be very careful. Smooth talk and flattery. In other words, have a tough mind. For they will deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Well, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. I, Tertius, who wrote the letter, imagine poor old Tertius with his quill and his scrolls, and he's trying to keep up with Paul. I wrote the letter, I greet you in the Lord. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, God's gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we've been able to see this righteousness and its outworking in community. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us a new mind. And through the renewal of our mind, transformation takes place. We're so grateful that by grace we have a new way of thinking, we have a new brain, we have a new mind which has been animated and brought to life by your spirit. And we pray, our Heavenly Father, that we would not conform to the way of this world but that we would be transformed by the renewing of that mind in the way we see ourselves, each other, the antagonistic world and those who rule over us as superior authorities. We pray that we'd have this renewed mind as we look at the weak and strong brother and sisters between us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, help us to be people of prayer and people who trust in you, people who are in the Lord, in Christ, no longer in Adam. And uh, we are encouraged as we remember that all those listed here in chapter 16 are now with Christ and that uh, you have set us apart with this great hope of inheritance one day to be with him in the nearer presence. And we thank you for this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.